Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 1. This is God's Word. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angel winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding... And every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Amen. May God add his blessing to the public reading from his own word. (coughs) Let's pray together again. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Uh, and that we can bring our petitions and make our petitions known unto you. 
We thank you that you are interested in all the details of our lives. Uh, And sometimes uh, the family members, the church family members here are going through difficult times. uh, And we want to pray for those that are going through trials and tribulations at this time. Some uh, have worries and anxieties about their health. Others have worries and anxieties about finances or family members or all the everyday occurrences in life can stress us out. And we pray, Lord, that you would undertake for us and help us to see that you will provide for us. You will watch over us and there's not a hair of our head falls to the ground, but you know about it. And you're in control of all circumstances and you want us to trust you whatever circumstances we find ourselves in and so lord we pray for your blessing upon the members of this this family we ask lord for those on holidays that you will bless them that they will be encouraged they'll be refreshed and that they will know the benefit of having time off from their daily the daily stresses of their work we pray for those who will be involved in in work outreach work there are many opportunities given during the summer months, uh, to tell other people about the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that for those that are involved in summer outreach activities, that you would be near to them. And that as your word goes forth day by day and week by week, that it will find a resting place in many hearts, and that ultimately those hearts will be touched by you, opened by you, that they will embrace the Saviour as he's freely offered in the Gospel. Conscious also of troubled spots in the world that we hear about from time to time on our television or radio. We think of uh, the various places in the Middle East that are volatile. We think of Syria at the moment and we think of Iraq and we think of other areas where there, uh, in Af- Afghanistan uh, where there's fighting going on and life has been lost. Lord, give your people in those countries. We pray for them. We live in a peaceful society now. We've always had the freedom to meet together, but some in these countries have to meet in secret, and some are under great pressure. We ask, O God, that you would draw near to them, that you would surround them with your love, and you will encourage them this day. We thank you for your promise that you are building your church And we thank you that the promise of Scripture is that in heaven there will be people from every tribe and tongue and kindred and nation. And so we ask, Lord, for the proclamation of your word and the success of the message of salvation being proclaimed. May there indeed be those who are drawn to the Saviour in these days. And now, Lord, as we would turn to your word to study it. We ask, Lord, for the illumination and the help of your Holy Spirit that we might hear your voice. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I wonder, do you remember the background to the letter to the Hebrews? The author is writing to a group of believers who had a Jewish background. But they were thinking of going back to their old religion. 
They had come to believe in that Jesus was the long-promised Messiah, but because of the pressures of their contemporaries, and because of the threat of further persecution, some of them were on the brink of throwing in the towel and going back to Judaism. Why would they do that? Well, simply because they would be accepted again within their community and they would not be the subjects of persecution from the Roman authorities. To put it very simply, life would be an awful lot easier. Or at least that's what they thought. And so the writer of the Hebrews is seeking to persuade them that Jesus Christ is the final revelation from God and there's no one and there's nothing that can give them salvation but Jesus. To give up on Jesus Christ would be like walking out on the clear light and into outer darkness. And in the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 1 that we looked at earlier, I think it was maybe back in April time, uh, the writer is underlining that God has finally spoken in Jesus and that Christ is the all-powerful creator, the only saviour of sinners, the God-man who came into the world to die for sin. Why would they give up on this and go back to partial revelation? Why would they go back to a system of religion which wouldn't ultimately guarantee them any forgiveness? He now wants to show them that Christ is superior to the angels. Now when I read verse 4, he became as superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. I wondered why the writer suddenly introduces angels. And I wondered why he deals with angels from verse 4 right through to the end of chapter 2. Almost two full chapters. Why is he talking about angels? Why is he saying that Jesus is superior to the angels? I think there are two reasons. Number one, angels were considered glorious beings who were faithful to God in their service. And in particular they were associated with Moses in the giving of the law. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19 it says, The law was put into effect through the angels by a mediator. So because of this rule, angels were highly regarded and honoured above every other creation or creature in the world. But there's a second reason why he's dealing with angels, and that is the Jewish authorities were quite happy to look on Jesus as a kind of an angel. We've had a debate about this, but in Job 1 verse 6, it makes reference to angels as the sons of God. And so the author, <clears throat> the sons of God, just being like angels. In other words, they were relegating Jesus to be one of the angels. The author spends time to show these believers that Jesus is far greater than an angel. And indeed it is blasphemy to look on the Saviour as just a created being like an angel. In effect he's saying 
don't be pressurized into thinking of Jesus as being ordinary. Don't be toning down your understanding of him. Remember he's God. Remember he's the only saviour. Yes the Jewish authorities may accept you back in their community. If you tone down Jesus and think of him only as an angel. But if you do that you're compromising. Indeed you're denying the very gospel. You know, it's not the same today. Isn't the pressure upon us today exactly the same? The world and other religions are happy to accept certain things about Jesus. If we say that Jesus is a good man, indeed if we say he's even the best of men, that world will be happy. If we say that Jesus was a great teacher, after all, look at the Sermon on the Mount and the high moral teaching if we say he's a great teacher, the world will have no problem with that. If we say we want to uh, praise Jesus because he's a te- good teacher and a good person and he set us an example of life, there's no problem with that either. The problem arises when we say, as the Bible says, that Jesus is the only saviour of sinners. The problem arises when we say that God was manifested in Jesus in the flesh and he came to take the punishment for sin. He he took that punishment in order that we might be forgiven. And there's no other way to heaven but through Jesus Christ. Once you say that, then you're in trouble with the world. The world will not accept our exclusive claims. The world will not accept any dogmatism. The world says all religions lead to heaven. Once we say only through Jesus. That's where the trouble lies. So just like the first century, we are under pressure to tone down who we believe Jesus is. And so the writer sets out to demonstrate that Jesus is superior to the angels. He's not an angel. He's more than that. What was the function of angels? What are they? Well, modern art has chubby, infantile little nudes from, of Raphael. The 19th century, how their angels are soft, slim, girlish-like creatures. But do you know in scripture every time an angel is mentioned there's cause for alarm. Remember Isaiah had the vision of God. There were seraphims around the throne and Isaiah was left traumatized by the experience. In Judges chapter 13 there's a story of Manoah who was confronted with an angel and he, his face fell to the ground. Angels are glorious creatures and after they appear to individuals usually the first word is fear not. There's cause for concern. Angels are mostly invisible. You remember the story of Balaam. He couldn't see the angel but his donkey could. And when angels appear as visible they're a wee bit like humans. Mark chapter 16 and verse 5 uh, at the tomb there's, there's a young man dressed in white and in the other gospels they're refer- referred to as angels and angels 
are normally marked by glorious light. We'll see that again in a minute or two when we notice Luke chapter 2 verse 9. But what the writer of the Hebrews is doing here in chapter 1 from verse 5 through to the end of the chapter is he's presenting a series of contrasts between angels and Jesus. I want you to notice four. The first is, angels are but messengers. Christ is God's only son. Look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father, or again I will be his father, and he will be my son. You know that verse 4 also talks about the name. And you know that in scripture a name reveals a person's essential character or nature. And the writer says that Christ's name is superior to the angels. They are messengers sent by God. They revealed the future to Daniel, to John in the book of Revelation. Gabriel announced the birth of John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 119 it says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. The same Gabriel came to Mary and told her that she was highly favoured and she was going to be give birth to the Son of God. Angels are messengers. But Jesus is the Son of God. Angels are messenger, messengers sent from God. But Jesus is the Son of God. And the writer here quotes from Psalm 2 that we've been singing earlier on. A messianic psalm to show that Jesus was eternally begotten of the Father and he will always be. He's different. He's not a creature. He's not an angel. He's the eternally begotten of the Father. This reference probably has reference to Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 where it says... Uh, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then there's a quote also from 2 Samuel 7 verse 14 which speaks of the royal line through David and was fulfilled in Luke chapter 1 verse 32. And there we read in Luke 1 32, uh, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Now the point is this. Jesus is eternally the son of God. No angel has been ever called that. No angel has ever been given the name son in the singular. Jesus is superior to the angels in terms of their name or character and then the second contrast is the angels are worshippers Christ is the one worshipped look at verse 6 and again when, he, when God brings his firstborn into the world he says let all God's angels worship him this is a, a, a quotation from the Greek edition of Deuteronomy 32 and verse 43 and refers to God's angels uh, worshipping the firstborn when he came into the world. This, of course, was fulfilled, as you know, in the coming of Jesus. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9, you remember when uh, the angel Gabriel came to the shepherds and declared that 
uh, it was a great day. The Saviour was born. And it says there that when shepherds living out in the field nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And the angel says, do not be afraid. There's the do not be afraid, the fear not. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you, he is Christ the Lord. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favour rests. This was the heavenly choir of angels who were joining with Gabriel and they were praising Jesus. Angels are worshippers. They're those who praise the Son. Jesus is the one who's worshipped. A third contrast is angels are created servants. Christ is the creator. This is verses 7 to 12. Sometimes it says the angels are just like the wind or just like fire. They are God's servants. As the wind blows, at the behest of God, as far as used by God, so the angels do God's bidding. Angels are just servants. But the Son, he sits on the throne. And the quotation here is from Psalm 45. Uh, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Verse 8. Righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Angels are just servants, but Jesus is the creator. The rule of Christ is referred to here as a rule of righteousness and a hatred of wickedness. And then it talks at the end of this quotation of the joy of Christ in his ruling. What's that refer to? What's the joy? In the original psalm, in psalm number 45, it's the story of a wedding psalm. And we have the, 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 the king who comes to meet his bride. And then he gathers his bride and takes her back to his place. Uh, and there's great rejoicing in the wedding uh, the wedding in the Jewish times lasted for days, not like our one-hour wedding service and maybe a, a reception, but for the Jews it lasted quite a while. But, but, and, and, and it started with the, 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 the groom going to collect his bride and take her back to himself. And of course that's a picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing. He, he comes into the world. Uh, he dies on a cross. He pays the price, the bride price, in order to purchase for himself a special people. People like you and I, if we're believers, we've been purchased because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And, and the joy that's referred to here is the joy of salvation, is the joy of the Saviour having his special bride, you and me, if we're believers. It's a great joy for him. That he endured the pain and he went to the cross and he died. And he paid the price and he took the, the punishment that God uh, would justly give to us if it hadn't been for Jesus taking the punishment. And he's purchased for himself a people of his own. And 
One day he's coming back to bring all his people to be with himself. This is the joy that Jesus will have at the end of verse 9. Do the angels know anything about that? Do the angels know anything about forgiveness of sins? No, they don't. Jesus didn't come to die for angels. Angels don't know anything about sin. And therefore they do not know anything about the forgiveness of sin. In in Peter's first letter in chapter 1 and verse 12, Peter is discussing how the prophets searched intently, trying to find out the time and the circumstances of the coming Saviour. They didn't fully understand about the sufferings of Christ, but they knew that they were predicting something in the future, something beyond themselves and their age. And Peter finishes this little section by saying this, even angels long to look into these things. They don't know anything about the joy of forgiveness. They don't know anything about the joy of the Saviour because he has a, a bride of for himself. Jesus didn't die for them. And then there's another quote at the end of verses 10 and to, 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 to 12. We'll just briefly mention it. The quote is saying that Jesus will remain the same in the midst of a changing universe. Jesus remains the same. The point again is, angels, they're just ordinary. They're, they're not divine. They, they, they do not know about the joy. Angels are just servants. Jesus is superior to them. And the final contrast is, angels are ministering spirits. Christ is the conquering king. Look at verse 14. This quotation is taken from Psalm number 110. Psalm is the most quoted in the New Testament. In ancient times it was the custom for the defeated king to prostrate himself before his conqueror and kiss his conqueror's feet. Then the victor would put his feet on the captive's neck and the captive would become his footstool. Joshua chapter 10 and verse 24. New Testament tells us in Philippians 2, Therefore God has exalted him to the highest place, and give him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. He is the conqueror. He's the ruling Lord. But angels. Just ministering spirits. Minor bit part players. Ministering to God's people. Yes an important work. Ministering to God's people. But not the conquering Lord. They ministered to Daniel didn't they? The minister to Joseph. The minister to Jesus just after the wilderness when he was tempted. The minister to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The minister to Paul after he was shipwrecked. And there are stories documenting how angels minister to God's people today. On a dark night about a hundred years ago, a Scottish missionary 
and his wife John G. Patton found themselves surrounded by cannibals intent on taking their lives. That terror-filled night drove John Patton and his wife to their knees. They prayed that God would protect them through that night. And intermittent with their prayers, the missionaries heard the cries of these savages and expected them to burst through the door at any moment and kill them. But as the sun began to rise, to their astonishment they found that the natives had withdrawn into the forest. The couple thanked God. They, they, they reckoned it was a day for rejoicing that they were still alive. And they continued bravely doing the work of evangelism. About a year later, the chieftain of that tribe was converted. And as the missionary spoke to him, he remembered the horror of the night when they thought they were going to be killed. And he asked the chieftain, tell me, why didn't you kill us that particular night? The chief replied, who were all those men who were with you? The missionary answered, sir, there were no men. There was just me and my wife. The chieftain argued and he said, look, there were hundreds of tall men in shining garments with swords drawn circling about your house so we could not attack you. John G. Patton concluded that God had sent his angels to guard them that night. Angels are ministering spirits sent by God to minister to believers. But Christ is the sovereign Lord, the conquering Lord who rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father. Now why does the author of the Hebrews spend so much time presenting this evidence? We've just briefly gone through it. Why does he spend that time showing that Jesus is superior to the angels? Why tell us that the, the angels are only servants and created beings and, and they've been sent to praise God and sent to deliver messages? Well, the answer is found in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2, which starts in the original with a therefore. In other words, it follows on from what has gone before. In the NIV, the therefore comes halfway through the sentence, but in the original, it's the first word. And the key thought here is there's a warning against drifting or neglecting this great salvation. The Old Testament law was very special to the Jews. And since it had been mediated via the angels, they were considered highly honoured and important. And this message that had been put into effect by the angels, the Old Testament law, had serious consequences if the terms were violated. You can see that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 5 onwards. God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. You remember they grumbled. 23,000 of them died. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 5 onwards tells us, gives us that. What, what, the, the writer, what the Bible is saying is that if the Old Testament law was violated, there were serious consequences. 
and people were punished and they didn't enter the promised land when they grumbled and, and ignored the law of God the result was the generation the whole generation of them died in the desert and they didn't see the promised land how serious to break the law of God which was put into effect by angels now says the writer how much more serious is it to ignore the message of salvation? Look at verse 3. This message of salvation, this final word from God, it was first announced by the Lord himself. It was confirmed by the apostles. And it was accompanied by signs and wonders and miracles. Jesus did the miracles. And the Acts of the Apostles will read about the miracles. In other words, what happened was the message was clearly portrayed that Jesus was crucified and God verified it as true. How shall we escape if we neglect so great or we ignore such a great salvation? Consequences for ignoring the law, breaking the law, how much more serious is it if we break them, if we don't, if we ignore the message of salvation? And so verse 1 says, we must pay more careful attention to what we have heard, so we do not drift. I think of the situation that the author was originally writing to, writing to people who were planning to drift and to go back to Judaism. We're going to go back to the old, drifting away from the message of salvation. Going to walk out on the gospel and reject the final revelation that God had given. Verse 1 speaks about drifting. Notice verse 3 speaks about ignoring. Here are the twin dangers. Neglecting Christ, drifting from him. Twin dangers for us today. First of all, neglecting or ignoring this salvation. Tell me this, how does one get to hell? Simply do nothing. Let the message bypass you. Don't be concerned about this message of, of Jesus and his love. Do nothing about the message and you go to hell. Simple as that. And the author is speaking to people who are in a visible church like, just like this church. He's not assuming that they're all believers because they're worshipping the church. And what he's saying is each one should pay more careful attention to what they have heard. In other words, the application to us this morning is to make sure that we have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I've said to the children, not enough just to know about Jesus. One must trust Jesus for themselves. Can I ask you directly, have you trusted Christ as your saviour? Or are you still ignoring that? Or neglecting that? Then the second danger is that of drifting. The nautical language used here suggests the anchor has broken loose and they're drifting out to sea. The anchor, of course, is Jesus. 
doesn't appear intentional, but they appear to be drifting through carelessness. Isn't it possible that believing people today can drift? Might even be one of the besetting sins of our generation. Drifting from Christ. Sinclair Ferguson in a sermon on this particular passage refers to the different times in our lives when we can drift from Jesus. The first he suggests is when young people go off to college or university. What will your priority be when you go to university? Will you say, I'm finished with all the restrictions of home life and church life. I'm now free to go into university and do what I like. Going to university will determine, and the kind of lifestyle you live will determine whether you are truly one of the Lord's people or just an empty professor. Another time when we can drift is when we're building our family or building our businesses. There are so many other things that we can be involved in. Legitimate things, but they can take the place of Christ. What do you, what do I allow to take control of my life? What's going to be first in my life? And then when the kids are gone, And the mortgage is paid. How will you use your time? My time? Or God's time? Strange, isn't it? When you're drifting, you don't really know it. Unless you check constantly your moorings. And I think this is a challenge for all of us who profess faith in Christ. Peter tells us to make our calling and election sure. Are we constantly paying attention to what we have heard? We should never assume that we're the Lord's people. We should check our moorings. So that we are day by day convinced of our interest in Christ. Are you the Lord's? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Sometimes it's difficult for us to understand some of the the verses of the passage that we were reading together. But we thank you that overall it's clear that Jesus is superior to the angels. And overall it's clear that we are the ones who have heard the message about Jesus. Oh God, may it be the case that none of us will ignore or neglect the salvation offered. And Lord, if we are your people, help us day by day to to, to check our moorings, check that we are close to the Lord. Lord, don't allow us to drift the different phases of life where it could be easy to drift. Help us to walk close with Jesus and to know that he's beside us.
Write your word on our hearts, we pray. And apply it to us, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen.